This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Network. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Network does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, the Spade interview series on designing the future of defense and security. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I had the opportunity to conduct a series of interviews with government executives and thought leaders during this year's Spade conference hosted in Susterberg, the Netherlands. Spade brought together defense, intelligence, and security leaders from Europe and around the world in dialogue with experts from IBM and industry. This year's theme, Designing for the Future of Defense and Security. And it included a discussion on the growing importance of design for military organizations and the application of design thinking to address military challenges and innovations like AI. Design thinking often focuses on innovation, emergence, and creativity which when applied within a military context seems and probably is a complementary alternative to traditional military planning processes. In fact, the U.S. military over the past decade has developed various forms of design thinking for complex problem solving in military complex. There is little doubt that the field of military design and design thinking continues to evolve, being leveraged across the military enterprise, being used within a variety of contexts to address a wide range of challenges. For example, the U.S. Special Operations Command has recently developed two operational design and design practitioner courses in an effort to integrate design thinking across all levels of U.S. SOCOM. What is military design thinking? How does it differ from traditional design thinking approaches? And what is the Joint Special Operations University doing to educate special operations personnel in the use of design thinking. I explore these questions and more with Hal McNair, Director of Continuing Education at the Joint Special Operations University, and faculty members Ben Zweibelson and Nate Schwagler. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Well, we're glad to be here. So um, the conversation I want to talk about today, you know, today design, design thinking have become buzzwords, uh, sort of like synergy, innovation, machine learning, and augmented intelligence uh, within defense circles and beyond. But I think it would be helpful for our audience to understand and describe design and design thinking. Perhaps you could provide, uh, you know, a brief overview of its genesis and continued evolution within the military and security context. I, uh, that's, that's a great question, and there's a lot of confusion on this. So very, very briefly... When we talk about military design, it's a type of design, and you still you have to go to the meta level and say, well, what is what is design in general? And so when you look at every 
practice, every discipline, discipline every field that's doing some sort of design, uh, they are essentially attempting to shape uh, objects and things in current reality, as well as ideas, in order to gain some sort of advantage in the future. That's what it all is. And so when we talk about even planning, military planning is a form of design. Now, when we talk about commercial application of design, which is probably much more prolific for the, the audience here, they, the, the approach of human-centered design, industrial design, advertising design, architectural design, all these things are moving towards creating uh, user experiences and new products, which makes sense for economic uh, relationships with human societies. There's also the monopoly of violence, and that's where military design comes in. Because when you look at conflict, human-organized applications of violence throughout all of history, this is about organization and power. And so you're not moving necessarily towards economic design considerations, although absolutely militaries consume, purchase, and use all commercial design applications. But they're used towards the monopoly of violence, whether you are the United States military or the Islamic State, or a drug cartel, or a lone wolf terrorist. You are attempting to influence monopoly of violence by using military design. And so that's one of the things that we work on in the various military design sub-disciplines, if you will. But they all started with the Israeli Defense Force in the mid-1990s and a Brigadier General Shimon Nave, who was the first, is credited, rightfully so, for, for developing the first military design methodology. And why this is significant is because there were previous innovators, creatives, postmodernists within the military. But what they were really doing there was adding an adaptation or innovation to the existing linear planning process. John Boyd, for our, our fans of the United States Air Force and the Marine Corps, are, are familiar with his OODA loop, Orient, Observe, Decide, Act. The, and, and a lot of what Boyd did that didn't get into the joint doctrine was very postmodern. He was very much a, a visionary designer but he was trying to enhance existing linear planning processes. What Nave did was different. Nave essentially said, I'm frustrated with all the things we do from the tactical to the strategic. I want to jettison, disrupt, destroy, and, and replace almost all of it with this new way of doing military design, of, of sense-making, of creativity, of experimentation. And so the, this is systemic operational design, which was done at a very high cerebral academic level. It was hard to translate, but the Israelis from the 1990s through the Hezbollah War of 2005 inspired other militaries, particularly the United States and the, and the Australians, because where were we then in 2003 to 2005? We were getting bogged down, in Iraq and Afghanistan, getting frustrated, things weren't working. The planning, the strategy, the methods, the principles, the tactics, the doctrine was not working. We needed military design. And that's where it began, continued to foster. That's a great start. So, you know, I don't know if you, either one of you gentle, other gentlemen have anything to add to that, but if you don't, I'd like to get into, um, you know, Ben, you mentioned industrial design, human-centered design. And, and you did a wonderful job of explaining military design or giving the historical context. How is the theory and practice, how do they differ? And I think you alluded to the difference between them, but it might be more of the question is, how is military design uniquely different from industrial or human-centered? What I'll tell you from my perspective as a graphic designer and, and a military uh, design practitioner is, is that there are going to be a lot of overlap and interplay between the methods. 
in that when you look at commercial design, you're going to have a process of some sort of making sense of yourself, mm -hmm. your frame, uh, and that's where empathy will, will work in. And then empathy is utilized in military design. However, because of the significant relationship between societies, organizational form, and the application of violence for coercive activities in societies, we have to look at how we organize and why, which means that empathy is important, but empathy by itself can be, it can almost become a single paradigm where we're, we're kind of blind to, well, we believe something is good because of our societal values. Mm -hmm. And so if I empathize with another stakeholder doing my design process, I might project my values and believe that that empathy is applicable to something that, that doesn't work at all or, or is inappropriate. And so what military design is, it really focuses on, we've got to look at where our frames are and where they end. And where another stakeholder has a fundamentally different frame in this conflict environment, and that's extremely important for us to realize to gain opportunity. And there's a great example of this that General McChrystal provided in, in his book of Team of Teams. And he's, he's talking about this story that's quite popular in Afghanistan, or with forces that have been there, of the well. And so uh, an organization, a military unit, descends upon a mountain village, and the women there are carrying water containers about a mile or so outside of the village to the well. And every day they're doing this multiple times a day. And so this military organization with all of the uh, non-lethal uh, lines of effort that we have, the SERP funds, and all the things that we want to do that, that, that helps improve the security and the stability of Afghanistan, we're going to build a well. And we're going to build it in the middle of the village and get the engineers in, and there's going to be a ribbon ceremony, and the, the local male elders are all very excited, and there's the photos and the storyboards, and the well's dug, and everything is going great. And then the well gets sabotaged. And so this unit, using empathy again, assumes, well, must be the Taliban, must be those dastardly villains, our enemy, and they are sabotaging this. Well, we will, we will find them and get them because now we've gone to lethal operations, which is what we prefer to do anyways. And so they, they provide ISR or, or um, surveillance on the well. And lo and behold, who do they find sabotaging the well? The women. Why? And why, do, do you, do you, can you guess why, why the women were sabotaging that well? They're they, they they like the socialization of going to absolutely. That's a great point. And you know, I wanted to get a sense of, in in the most abstract sense. To what extent is design uh, focused on using one's understanding of yesterday and today uh, to create a different tomorrow? And how does doing this involve combining established ideas and practices with unexplored and novel ones? That, great question, and it deals with emergence, which is really one of the most important elements of design. So one of the, one of the tensions is that the military, our, our decision-making methodology almost inevitably is an ends-ways-means reverse-engineered process. So we establish our, our, our strategic goals or even our tactical goal, and then we reverse-engineer ways and means to that and establish. And there's a whole very pseudoscientific engineering language-fueled approach mm -hmm. Uh, and we can get into the philosophy of this, but what we tend to do is we have a single line going from today to tomorrow, and we're going to trudge and march along according to that plan, and the greater fidelity that we think we can get more information, more statistics, more description, it's going to lead to explanation. And in complex systems, it doesn't. 
description leads to more description. But it does not lead to explanation. And that's something that's really challenging for military organizations that are really good at localized tactical and technological impacts in simple and complicated systems, but not complex or chaotic ones. And so one of the things that we provide in military design, Carl Weick, a sociologist, and we love using Carl's, Carl Weick's work, he talks about the illusion, if you will, the frame that we remember the past so that we can imagine the future. And that sounds right when you think about it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. We, but what Weick really is saying is no, you need to break your frame and disrupt it because it's actually the opposite. And he uses an interpretivist approach in sociology, but what he's really saying is we imagine the past so that we can then remember how the future's supposed to go. And so once you can get the military to wrap their heads around that, it builds them into being a reflective practitioner, and now we can start to challenge, deconstruct, augment, and even completely replace elements or even the entire military decision-making process because that which is needed tomorrow does not yet exist, either in idea or tangible form, but your military organization needs it, and you have to design it. And it's never been seen before, so you can't prove it, and there's no history. And we can see that transformation, that shift happen in people's thinking when we're doing these kinds of design workshops. It starts out with, give them a scenario and say, um, what do you think about this, right? Like, how do, you get, how do you get your head around it? How are you making sense about this system? And then we say, oh, great, just do us a favor. Represent that, but you can't use any words. You can imagine the look on their face, right? Because now you're asking you know, military professionals to become artists. They're going to have to sketch this out for you. So once they get past the initial trepidation, they realize, well, actually, we can, we can communicate our thinking visually, which activates a variety of um, brain circuitry that is beneficial and sort of useful um, to help do this. The next step is we say, okay, that's great. We've got an initial frame. Take a look around the room. Uh, what do you notice about these, these frames? We see a lot of similarities, right? A, sort of a universal convergence of thinking. So we say, okay, that's great. How much diversity do we have in our ideational output right now? And an honest assessment, you look around the room, not a whole lot. There's not a lot of divergence there. The next step is you say, okay, I visualized your thinking. We've acknowledged the fact that we're probably over-indexed on convergence. Uh, the next step is to say, well, why do we think we're seeing it that way? Let's shift our thinking from here's how we think the world is, using our favorite words, um, military acronyms, uh, and with all the, the cultural um, and historical baggage that comes along with that, to a fresh perspective driven by graphics and visuals that's metacognitive in nature, in that it allows us the space and freedom to say, here's how we see ourselves seeing it right now, and here's why we think we're seeing it that way. That kind of a conversation is fundamentally different and produces very different outcomes uh, compared to a conversation that would happen if you left a team to their own devices to do the military decision-making process or the, the joint planning process. So, Nate, what you just described, if you're in that room, and this is a more general question in terms of what military designers face, uh, what kind of resistance do you folks face, and, and how do you address them? The biggest challenge they face is an internal one, exactly. and it's a layer of socially constructed norms and values. They think they have to play by the checklist that they were given when they first showed up, right, that they all memorized, that they all was indoctrinated in them, right? Um, but what's interesting is over time they realize that you know, 
just because that's the way it was done before, it doesn't necessarily suggest that that's going to be the optimal approach going forward. And some just won't drop their tools. That's no matter what. The professional military education system taught me this. It started with Klausowitz. It can't be wrong. And you guys are, are totally off. So I've, I'm going to defend it. I will sit here and I will try to hold my own and I'll defend it against you know, you with these violent ideals that are trying to disrupt my whole universe. And some will never, they're just, a third of them will walk out of there going, oh, that was horrible. I mean, I, I, I'm kind of glad I know it so I can watch for those kind of people again. But uh, I, I'll never learn this because they taught me, they're trying to teach me wrong. And because they've been scarred through 12, 15, 20 years of military education, and they believe this is the way it is. And because... They envision it. When they see a problem, they are already envisioning the answer because they've seen it, heard it, thought about it, or they'll make it fitted to something they've seen it, heard it, thought about it, done it, so that they can go d- directly to something that makes them feel comfortable. I'm going to work this problem this way. Mm-hmm. And as long as they work that problem that way they've been taught, even if it fails, they haven't failed because they did the problem the way they were taught. Now, if they take and listen to Ben and Nate and they do a problem and it's highly successful, well, that must have, that. That's a singularity. Yeah, that's singular. That shouldn't have happened. We could have done it with planning right. just as well. That's just as well. But if it fails, then, then see, you're totally to blame. You did something different. If you'd have done the right thing, this would have been, you know, this would have been great. And so, when you've got, you have to have a leader that will take that risk to allow you to allow him to fail. And if he fails, have done something different, then that's it. That's why you failed. How dare you fail? Mm-hmm. And you did something that, or he could have taken that big advantage and been highly successful. And people would have said, oh, just a one time thing until he does it and repeats it again. So I can't help but, but cite Ellen Toffler here, or Elvin Toffler, sorry. But the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. And I think that's our job. We're trying to ignite the vessel again, right? Uh, people, again, who have been incredibly successful um, at what they're doing. And can you get them to drop their tools and, and fundamentally reimagine how they might approach things? If I could add one more element of resistance that I think is unique and, and relevant to this, this um, recording— when we have people who become very experienced in design, a type of design, and you encounter military design, many commercial designers who have had vast experiences, whether using the, the Stanford D School, Horst Riddle, Enterprise Design Thinking, uh, the Rodham School, there's so many, RISD, uh, UPenn, you name it. There's just there's all these great, I went to a graphic design school in the, the University of Connecticut because uh, I couldn't, I didn't have money for RISD. <laughs> but but uh, th- there's, there's so many different fields with so many different experts. And so when experts who are unfamiliar with military design encounter the military doing this, the, re- the first reaction, which is this resistance, is you should just do design the way we do it. Now, here's my rebuttal to that. As technology and these new domains of cyber and uh, space and all these challenges for the military as well as for commercial applications, you also have a, a richer diversity of different ways of doing design for different contexts. So there's an economic context, absolutely, but there's a security or monopoly of violence context is what I like to, to, to kind of steer it towards. And are those both occurring simultaneously? Certainly. 
But when we think about maybe a sliding scale in terms of design relationships, if we are looking, let's say, out the window right now in this beautiful, we're just outside of Amsterdam, and there's probably some local police in this town. And if somebody does some vandalism or breaks into something, the local police are there to provide the monopoly of violence so that you could have economic activities occurring out there. The inverse, though, is that if we go to the Horn of Panjway right now in southern Afghanistan, it's much more expensive for any company to do business there because the monopoly of violence has been ceded or lost to other organizations. Now, you still might be able to do a lot of business under, but you're going to do it under a cartel, the Taliban, uh, the Islamic State, whoever. Uh, but that ratio, if you will, is the context that we're in now requiring more military design or more of a commercial or economic-based design. You need both, but which one is more relevant? If you are working with the Brundisphere on their cyber outward public-facing domain, that's probably a heavy technological design, cyber design, commercial design application. Absolutely. But what about if the Germans are in Syria and they're working a counterinsurgency while also defending against cyber attacks and running a humanitarian effort? And oh, by the way, they're working a political issue within the European Union at the same time with a messaging challenge. I mean, that's a complex military challenge. How are we going to work on that with monopoly of violence context? And that's where I see an important element of resistance, but this is almost a, a brother and sisterhood of different designers that just need to learn a little bit more about each other. I think you called it a multi-dimensional, multi-player or multi-faceted approach. Multi-domain. Multi-domain. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. So, okay. uh, Nate, do you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, I think so. The resistance piece is interesting. I think we've touched on it at the individual level of analysis. If we kick it up to the organizational one, I think Ben's uh, point and or observation rings true, um, especially in that I can make an argument that there's no such thing as an optimal design process. There are only optimal design processes, and the optimization is a reflection of the context that you're trying to practice in. So to Ben's example, you have to take into consideration the audience you're working in, the nature of the problem you're working on. I mean, it could be a fit uh, or the best fit in that moment in time could be not anyone's human-centric design model or a military design model. It could The optimal intervention at that moment in time might be a Lego serious play, mm-hmm. or it could be... Uh, you know, there's a, a metaphor-driven uh, approach called synectics, or it could be Osborne Barnes' creative problem solving. And I think the argument we're trying to make is that you need to be up to speed on all of them so that you can figure out which is the best one to apply in that moment and in, in that time. And at a higher level of abstraction, you could make an argument that, okay, well, that awareness and that sense-making of the environment is a form of design, and then crafting your intervention to then come in and facilitate. This is where it gets a, it's a fascinating conversation to have, and I think that it's oftentimes lost in that it's incredibly nuanced. Uh, but if you get somebody who is making an argument that they know or they have the, the best design model, uh, they're probably trying to sell you something because at the end of the day, it really boils down to finding the right process and context fitness uh, to ensure that you're providing your participants the best abilities to have aha moments and, and create uh, create value. You know, it's interesting when when we teach design, but how do you how do you make a designer? Mm-hmm. So how do you make a Ben or a Nate so that they can facilitate their own design movement and their own design problems? That's our biggest problem. In any industry you talk to, any school, they'll tell you that's the hardest thing to do. You can, you can give them basic knowledge, but where it comes to play is when you get to a sticking point and you're dealing with a design problem 
If you don't have the expertise to switch back and forth between different design models or different creative problem solving models, you can't get them off the mark because they're going to get to a place they're stuck. And you're going to get to a place where a young design facilitator is stuck and he can't move them off the mark. So to develop the expertise that a Ben or a Nate has takes a large percent of the time. And that's our next problem that Ben and Nate and I talk about is how are we going to develop a process so that we can develop actually facilitators so that they can go out with their own teams and make sure they can solve their problems. And uh, it, it, it's, it's a challenge that we haven't, we haven't got there yet. What is the Joint Special Operations University doing to educate special operations personnel in the use of design thinking? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, the Spade Interview Series. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guests today are Hal McNair, Director of Continuing Education at the Joint Special Operations University, and faculty members Ben Swibelson and Nate Schwagler. I want to talk about what you're doing at the Joint Special Operations University um, in terms of developing, experimenting, and educating SOCOM. Uh, and other military forces on the variety of military design concepts and techniques. What's going on? What are you folks doing? You know, it's an exciting time at the you know, Joint Special Ops University. And again, we are the education arm of the U.S. Special Operations Command. And our goal is to cognitively outpace our competitors. So we have to look at that. And we're looking at the whole range of special ops activities and missions that we have to educate for. And some of them are dealing with civil affairs, some of them with psyops, some of them with planning uh, and different types of air operations, just a whole spectrum. So as we look and try to decide how we're going to educate to those topics, I've kind of broken it down and said, OK, what kind of problem set are those problems? And I've kind of looked at it and said, well, these are simple problems. These are complicated problems and these are complexity that we need to deal with. And so typical tactical operations is there's simpler, complicated problems, and we will apply one set to that. And it's more knowledge-based. This is what this is how it's done, this is what you do. And if you in, you can do that. Where we get on the other end with creative problem solving in in design is where we're trying to go after complexity. Uh -huh. That's a different problem set. And so when I'm looking across the spectrum of all the things that we're trying to teach on different varied audiences, I look at it and I say as a director and say, okay, this problem set, this problem set, this problem set, and try to put these, you know, these assets against it so that we can develop that whole soldier. And what we find is the most innovative units we have, you know, our special mission units, are the 
people that gravitate toward this first. They tend to be the most innovative. Mm -hmm. They tend to be the most accepting of new techniques and tactics and procedures, whether or not it's education or something actually happening on the ground. Many times in our community, we will focus on that group of people first, and the rest of the community will kind of say, oh, that's what those guys are doing. So we should be doing that. And it just breaks down barriers for others that want to go, hey, that's special. I need to take place. And before we get to the demand, because I want to talk about what you're doing uh, in the States, but also internationally, because uh, from our conversation, I find that fascinating what you're doing there. But are you looking or is the is the program established in a way from a content perspective where you are cultivating the Ben's and Nate's of the future? The, the design ethos at JSAL has shifted over the past several years. And so what we once did, the meta, metaphor I like to use is we, we used to be mountain climbers. And so we, a, a team would say, hey, we want to get up this mountain. And we'd be like, don't worry, follow us. We're going we're gonna to climb up the mountain. We're going to take you with us. You hold on to the rope. We're going to get you to the top. And when you're at the top of the mountain, you can celebrate around us because we got you there. Give us a call when you need us to climb another mountain. We'll be waiting. That model doesn't really work. And, and part of it is that JSO's small. And when we talk about what Hal's talking about, that we're trying to create facilitators, we have now shifted. The design ethos at JSO is about being designed Sherpas. It's a great metaphor because we're there to help you go up a mountain, but it's about you. It's about your organization with a new challenge. Sometimes we go into a design educational process with them that's at a classified level, and we're just finding out about it that day because, you know, of various um, requirements. And so then we as the Sherpa help them up the mountain, but it's about them learning to climb themselves. Uh, to Ben's point, I think we've been successful in um, helping to ignite the curiosity around developing the design facilitation capability or capacity in a variety of individuals who are coming through JSAO as students. Um, I think something extraordinary that I've, I've been able to uh, observe uh, as a relatively new guy coming onto the team was the extent to which Hal and Ben have developed international networks of uh, potential practitioners and, and have curated interest and um, you know, partners from around the world. We, we have a large international program yeah. at the Joint Special Ops University, and it's paid for. It cannot be paid for under the Title 10 that we're under. Cannot SOCOM cannot educate foreign soldiers. Uh, they have there's training money, but there's no education money. So money has to come from other sources to do it. The legacy of JSAL as an international educator, you know, in special ops, is there, oh, yeah. and it continues to grow. And then design comes along, and we're the only ones exporting design internationally. And JSAL is the envy of all our countries because you have found a way to operationalize education. There's and, an important distinction there between training and education, right? Yes. And, and that's actually a, a, a SOCOM, you know, the mission of JSAO is not to train, and it's not to do staff work for, for units in SOCOM. All right, it's, it's about education, which goes back to the Sherpa, yeah. the Sherpa ethos. Yes. And we have a thing that says, you train for certainty, you educate for uncertainty. So that's what we educate for. We educate for uncertainty. We educate, you know, so that you have these, this tool set that you can use when things are uncertain. Well, you, you know, in the previous segment, what you gentlemen were talking about from a theory perspective is that you're questioning 
And in thinking about the responses you might get from an international audience or a homegrown audience is you're questioning their epistemology in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And with that, I'm kind of thinking, what are the biggest challenges and opportunities associated with design, design thinking? In And I'd like you to focus it on the defense and, and military side, if you could. Uh, I, I, I always, I love using movie references in what we do. And Nate and I are really we really can connect with the students. And if you remember the old movie Flash Gordon, when he rips the controls out of the, the row of planner, you know, Ming's planners, they all, they all shut down. And that's, that's how I feel when I unleash epistemology. But here, here it is, is that the essence of everything we do in our basic and our advanced design course revolves around working with gaining awareness, self-awareness, of what is your epistemology? What is your the paradigm? Because you know when we when we talk about epistemology, ontology, these are philosophical terms. And for for those of our of the listeners who aren't familiar with that, you know, very uh, not to get into the philosophy deeply, but ontology is what you know is and what is not, and epistemology is how we know how that knowledge is constructed. One of the examples that we like to use is uh, the, the movie The Gods Must Be Crazy, where the, the gentleman throws the Coca-Cola bottle out the window, and the tribe finds it, and they're doing all these crazy things with it. It's because they have a, they didn't have an epistemology that the Western society gave them on what a soda bottle's for. And so when you apply this to war, and we look at very complex challenges, such as unconventional warfare, cyber attacks, terrorism, let's look at beheadings. It's a graphic, gruesome, horrifying thing. And the epistemological answer from a Western paradigm, an Anglo-Saxon paradigm, whatever you want to call it, might be, well, that's a propaganda intimidation technique for et cetera. That, that, that is an approach there. But a different epistemology might be, well, what if, and this is a quote, uh, Rappaport, uh, what if this enemy that we have, say in this case the Islamic State, what if they really believe that they're bringing about the end of the world? And the, the fancy term for that is uh, eschatological. Right? So if you are a divine messianic eschatological organization, which means that you believe that you're here on the planet, it's divinely inspired and you are there to trigger about the Armageddon, then each beheading that you do takes on a completely different epistemological mean or reason or purpose. And whether or not it's right or wrong isn't the issue. The issue is can that SOCOM organization, that design team, can they gain that additional perspective, consider the tensions, the overlap, the interplay, and most significantly, what are the opportunities that we're not thinking about? I think there's additional risk there because if you can't have the, what Simon Sinek might refer to as the existential flexibility to reimagine your own organization, fundamentally different from how it is now, then you, I think that's how you end up on the wrong side of strategic surprise. Because if you're not willing to entertain that construct or that new way of thinking about yourself in the future, um, you've got to think that somebody else in the world will think about that. And you don't want to find out the hard way. And that's a competitive advantage. Absolutely. Find that. Are there examples that you would like to share where your uh, design or problem-solving talent came in and changed something? Some success stories? There's plenty of examples where, for example, we worked with the um, Air Force Special Operations Command last year, and they were looking at how they do their entire education um, pipeline for their air commandos, from recruitment 
to ed- initial education, the development, the maturation of them, the sustainment and development of new skills all the way through retirement or, or them leaving the service, the entire process. And so we did this, this design you know, workshop with the education, with their leadership and their staff. And that's really important is that just like with, with commercial design and understanding the, the role of the strategic sponsor, key stakeholders, you have to have that leader not just receiving a briefing, which is more of the traditional planning methodology. And and I'm a recovering military planner myself, having the slide deck in ahead the day prior so that the boss can come in and get it. That's all out the window. And so what we do in in this design process, and in this case, this, the air commando senior leader was involved in the design, having that discourse, having those debates. And we drop uniforms, we drop rank, we drop all these things. We, we disrupt the centralized uh, hierarchy, if you will, or softened it, not because of a, a fear of lack of discipline, but you have to disrupt and dismantle some of these things to get those types of discussions where somebody says, sir, I think you're wrong, and here's why, and having those conversations. And so what resulted from that design enterprise uh, of, of five days uh, is they completely redid their entire educational campaign. And this year they unveiled the entire strategic vision, the campaign plan, all the associated tasks uh, and processes, and it all stems back to um, that design session. Another unclassified example with SOCOM headquarters was their uh, future operating concept. And so they published this white paper document, very similar thing. But months earlier, they had this design session with Nate and I, and we did it at JSAO with a small group. Same type of thing. Now, the white paper, if you read it, is not going to have those design metaphors, the things that are on the boards. And we still have you know, the images, and we shared it with them. And we, we do that. We take the photos, and we, we give it to them because they want to re- return to it. But it's not in there. It's above the paper. It's in that epistemological element of why did they write the white paper and talk about the strategic vision for the future operating concept the way they did? I think there's a significant opportunity for return on investment when you start applying tools that work really, really well out in the marketplace Mm -hmm. on yourself as an organization to become truly what Ben would describe as a reflective practitioner. Uh, And can you can you scale that up to the organizational level where you now have a learning organization, um, you know, going back to the ultimate objective, as Hal mentioned, to cognitively outpace the competitors? What is the future of the military design movement? We'll explore this question and much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. 
The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center Reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, the Spade Interview Series. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guests today are Hal McNair, Director of Continuing Education at the Joint Special Operations University, and faculty members Ben Swibelson and Nate Schwagler. Before we move on, because I have a couple more questions for you, gentlemen, could you just tell me a little bit about yourself, your career path, just so for our listeners? Um, how would you like to go first? Yeah, I'm a retired uh, Special Forces Officer, Green Beret. I spent 22 years in the military. Uh, when I retired, I was out for like a year, and then uh, I got a call to uh, go to work for what became JSAL. And because I had a joint background, and they were moving into joint warfare and joint education, and I've been there ever since. So I'm the the long I'm the original plank holder of JSAL, the longest standing member of JSAL, and. I got one more year to do this, and I've uh, got another challenge coming forward for the next year. But uh, it's the great thing about it is the guys and gals we work with. They're all, it's just the same people we grew up with and worked with in special ops the whole time. And, you know, Nate's not a special operator, but he's got the heart and soul to one, and so has Ben. And there's no, you know, somebody asked me last night, said, uh, how, what does it take to be a special operator? And I said, it's very simple. You know, you gotta be extremely physical. I said, no, you gotta be too dumb to quit. Interesting. Cause if, if you were real smart, you wouldn't do this. If you were, if you were <laughs> contemplating it, you'd go, no, this is not real smart. I shouldn't do it. So I'm always laughing. You're just too dumb to quit. You just keep moving and keep doing and uh, you'll you'll become a special operator, but uh, so inter- I, you never would have thought it that way, but that's funny. I mean, so my perspective on it. Ben? Yeah. So I'm, I'm Ben Zweibelson. I'm a, a failed oil painter. And <laughs> so, uh, I mean, that's really my, my origin into why I'm, I'm sitting here today with you is that I, I went through my, my childhood all the way through my early adulthood as kind of an artist, a, a creative, a, a, didn't really fit in and had a, no interest at all in having the man tell me what to do and join the military. And fast forward to... Uh, uh, my good friend Garrett, uh, who works for IBM, uh, took me to the Summerstown Fair in Connecticut, uh, and I had no money and no, and no family at that point, and I had to pay for college, and someone was saying, one week in a month, two weeks in the summer, join the Connecticut National Guard. <laughs> and so that starts this other strange adventure, which has quite a bit of failure in it as well, but I ended up in the, the infantry for 22 years, and along the way, I went to the U.S. Army School of Advanced Military Studies, which is kind of a an advanced level planning uh, school for operational level and a little bit of strategy, uh, but mostly at the operational level of war. But there was where I met Shimonave and several other military designers, and that's where I got exposed to this. What for me had been graphic design as an undergrad, and along the way, the military kind of said, hey, we really like the, co- the, the, the pretty pictures you make. You make good slides. You're back on staff again, <laughs> which was terrible. And then suddenly I'm in this environment where, no, you can use military design to do all those things that previously got you in trouble 
and it still got me in trouble anyways. But luckily I landed landed at JSAO with Hal and now I'm finishing my doctorate in, in phil- the philosophy essentially of military design. And applying it here has been a, an incredible opportunity to serve my nation um, even though you know, I'm retired and I'm, I'm now serving as, in the capacity of a contractor, but still being part of it. And I think that's also what really uh, inspires Hal as well as Nate. Our, our interactions with uh, the military and, and uh, special operations in particular and being able to provide this type of creativity and education and seeing them run with it. I mean, that's truly so gratifying, and I'm, I'm lucky to have this job. I'm Nate Schwegler. Uh, I've been obsessed with creative problem solving since I was a little kid. I always felt like there was an opportunity to go around the system, to bend the rules. Um, and most of the time I was right. The, other rest, the rest of the time I got whacked on the side of the head. And I think over time you try to reduce the, uh, the frequency and, and uh, the velocity with which you get whacked. Um, but you don't stop thinking that way. And through a series of, of life events, I ended up finding my tribe uh, at the International Center for Studies and Creativity, a niche Master of Science degree in creative problem solving at SUNY Buffalo State. And I immersed myself in the, in the literature there and, and you know, found what was really um, what I'd been looking for my whole life. Um, shortly after that, I ended up in business school, um, realizing that uh, as a practitioner of deliberate creativity, you could help people think up really creative ideas in a workshop environment. But if you couldn't help them execute those ideas back out in the wild, once they got back into the, the really competitive environments within their organizations and in the marketplace, um, I wasn't confident that I wanted to spend the rest of my life helping people think up ideas that they couldn't actually make happen. Um, and I thought to myself, well, who can make that? Who, who really is good at taking the future and pulling it back into the present and manifesting it right now? And I, after doing a little bit of scanning in the, in the literature, I realized it's entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Entrepreneurs can cast a hook out into the future with their vision and then pull it back into the now. And they wrap a business model around it and apply principles of design uh, in order to make their, uh, they use business as a vehicle to make new ideas happen in the world. So I started studying entrepreneurship at the University of South Florida, and I kept uh, dog-earing all the pages in my textbooks that referenced creativity, imagination, innovation, et cetera. And I realized, holy crap, these two disciplines that are fundamentally divergent in terms of where they come from intellectually, uh, creativity coming from primarily psychological uh, sciences, and entrepreneurship coming from the management and, and business literature. I said, these two things are so incredibly related, yet their disciplines don't talk to each other at all. I said, I want to carve out space in between these two things and be that guy. So I taught entrepreneurship at the University of South Florida and the College of Business uh, in St. Petersburg for almost five years um, with a theoretical commitment to creative problem solving as the vehicle by which you teach entrepreneurship. And I had students win back-to-back-to-back national championships in a business planning competition, which is unheard of for this small little school down in, you know, in sleepy St. Petersburg, Florida. Um, and it was, it was funny because the uh, designers of the competition thought it was so anomalous that they would have won three years in a row that they changed the software thinking that we had <laughs> hacked the system. So shortly after that, uh, I get an opportunity to walk across the street and start running similar programs that I had been teaching uh, to the undergrads but for corporations, and to do so through the lens of Salvador Dali. Uh, St. Petersburg, Florida has the largest collection of Salvador Dali's artworks outside of his hometown in Figueres, Spain. 
and the Dali Museum uh, and I entered into a, a partnership where we ran a corporate creativity and innovation services laboratory. So we sold creativity as a service to corporations uh, using Dali's paintings to help people reimagine the ways in which the world might be. He could put 10 layers of reality on the same canvas and 10 people will look at it and see 10 different things. And I said, that's exactly how diverse teams of people need to come together and, and think about complex problem solving and, and complex systems management. So one day I got an email from this guy named Ben Zweibelson from U.S. Special Operations Command saying, hey, I found you online and I'm really curious about what you're doing. Can I bring a team over and visit the museum? And I said, absolutely, in preparation, because I don't know anything about U.S. Special Operations Command. Can you send some literature? I'd love to read up. So he sends me a couple of his publications. I read them, reflected on them for a little bit, and I said, wow, this guy's really sharp. This, this, this science of military design and this philosophy of design applied in a military and security context is fascinating. Um, so he showed up with the team, and uh, we had kind of uh, a nice discussion um, and site visit at the museum. Uh, and then uh, Hal and Ben invited me to come over to the Joint Special Operations University and, and give a lecture to the faculty and staff. And from that point on, um, it's been a match made in heaven in that it hasn't felt like work uh, a single day. And, you know, in, in government, I don't know if that happens very often. It's fascinating. I mean... Uh, you we're here at Spade, 2019, and I think. Uh, but where I was going with this is that you've participated in panels. You're you're engaging at Spade 2019 on this subject uh, uh, and its application, and, and maybe the previous. Uh, would you share with me some of the key insights you've gathered from the panels or the um, whether you engaged or participated in them, or what would you get out of it, and how is it going to help you do what you're doing? We're real, always interested in design and what other people are doing in design. And we, we got to sit with Adam, Sam, you know, there who's talking about the, the most probably complex design problem with AI that, that anybody has and to listen to Adam. And, and to watch Adam with these two designers get together and it's just like, I mean, they, they're like old friends that found each other, old dogs or something. But uh, it was great. But then for us to listen to everybody else talk about AI and what the, con the confusion I see and what the differences are between what machine learning is and what we actually do in machine learning and what AI could be but is not right now is fascinating to me. And because you couldn't get a standard definition that whole time period of what, and, uh, and I really think Adam had it. And uh, so we're interested in that because that's the next thing that we want to make sure that the special ops community understands what they can get with it, what it, what it can be in the future. As Adam said, how it, throughout history takes man 25 years to really take an innovative uh, issue, a piece of equipment, a concept, and develop it. So if, if we're five to 10 years away from AI and then we're 25 years before we maximize it, I mean, what can it be? And, and maybe it won't be that long now, but uh, that was what was critical to us. And we'll take that back. We got a Rolodex of people that now we'll bring to U.S. Special Operations Command. We'll first educate our senior leaders and say, this is what this, this is what you're really talking about. You see this shiny thing, this is what it is. And then we'll start to educate you know, you know, our staff below and their, their staffs so that they understand, so that they're starting to prepare for, I can do this with this. 
I can eventually imagine what I can do with AI. And then, again, we're just cognitively trying to outpace our competition by getting that in there, you know, give them that tool that they can use. And that's what we're going for. One of the things that I encounter quite regularly using design and and talking with military organizations about machine learning, human-machine teaming, this notion of artificial intelligence and robotics and kind of those types of relationships is there's a fixation right now on lethality and on very kind of objective approaches to kill chains and Skynet and Terminators and all these different things that, 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 you know, entertainment is shaping and perhaps misshaping the imagination. And what, what really excited me when I first met Adam Cutler was he immediately went in the exact direction that Nate and I and Hal have been have been working on in design with talking about these things, which is the irrational, the subjective side, the love, compassion, friendship with with these systems. And what are those complex challenges there? Because the killing part, frankly, is quite simple. It's almost oversimplistic. And that's not necessarily the real challenges here for the next generation. The real challenges are going to be what what Adam talked about in the panel, and I love Star Wars references, of course. I mean, we've got to go back to movies. He's talking about the relationship between the, the characters and the droids. When one of the characters in, in one of the more recent Star Wars movie embraces uh, BB-88, I think his name was, a little round one, I always remember Luke Skywalker talking with the tech people about R2-D2 before they load him back into his X-Wing, and he's about to go on the run. They go, hey, your Astro tech is really beat up here. Do you want a new one? Oh, No. Me and that R2 unit, we've been through a whole lot together, right? This is something that is irrational, but it's essentially absolutely human. And it goes, it goes to empathy, it goes to epistemology, ontology, our frames, awareness, compassion, violence. Monopoly of violence is going to always be and has always been throughout human history an oscillation between compa- human compassion and human violence. And when we look at our, our pets... Or, I'm sorry, with how we treat animals. Some animals we slaughter for food, and some animals we keep as pets. For us to not think that machines and the human-machine teaming is not going to have absolutely significant elements of that on the battlefield, we're setting ourselves up for, for failure. And so how can we reshape that for what we need to think about for 2030, for 2040, and 2050 with these human-machine teams? And what are the new challenges that special operations teams may encounter where we don't have ramp ceremonies for anyone but human beings right now and working dogs. And that's significant. And we talked about this yesterday at the panel. But when will there be a ramp ceremony for a piece of technology? Because it's been bonded to us or we've bonded with it at that level. And then what do you do for that team? That's a new challenge. There's another question too. Are we taking the concept of a ramp ceremony and applying it just because it's the frame that we're used to and, and coming from, or will there be a new version of something like that for artificial intelligent agents? Mind blown. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> <laughs> when I think about it, I'll try to build off um, both Hale and Ben's comments. If I were tasked with designing the most resilient organization, because I think we're in a, an era of so much accelerated change to the point where you can't predict what's going to happen. Back to Ben's comment about emergence. You don't get to know ahead of time anymore. So the optimal strategy seems to be having the most agile and resilient organizational st- structure and form that you can. And if I were tasked with doing that from, a, from scratch, 
it would have to be a network-based solution. The smartest people in the world don't work for you just by raw power of, of numbers and intellectual mass that's out there, right? So the optimal strategy is to actually have good, effective working relationships, collaborations, partnerships, et cetera, with the sharpest people from fundamentally and radically different backgrounds than what you have in your organization. Diversity is the play. And I think that's part of the benefit of being here is we're able to uh, connect and engage with thought leaders from a wide variety of organizations who are operating at the highest levels of their domain. So the chief information officers and security experts from industry, from military, from uh, government, all in the same room at Spade. And you just can't get there anywhere else. And we're the only military education element here. We're the only university here. That's right. Well, thank you, gentlemen. This has been a great conversation. I really appreciate your time. I know you've been busy. These, these conferences tend to stick a lot in a little time. So thank you for coming. Yeah, please. Well, if I could just throw one thing on there. For, for listeners who are interested in, in JSAL and what courses are available and who gets to attend, uh, generally it's going to be Department of Defense and International Militaries, and there's all these different kind of variations and exceptions. But the the best thing for for interested listeners to do is to go to the JSAL portal, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is available online. Uh, they just need to search at Google, just type in the Joint Special Operations University homepage or, or JSAL courses, and it'll bring them to to a, a, an accessible public facing page that has all the courses, points of contact to our registrars the university and all the different types of educational outreach as well as publications. Uh, and we're expanding into a lot of multi-media uh, forums such as podcasts. We have a YouTube channel under JSAO User where we've, have, in our case, we have design lectures that are available. And then, of course, there's the standard paper publications and monographs and, and whatnot. But uh, we're really looking at shifting towards the millennial way of learning, which anyone who has kids knows our kids and, and, and grandchildren, that they learn differently. They think differently. This is a smartphone generation, so how, how can we provide that education? That's really where JSO is moving next, I believe. This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, the Spade interview series. My guests today were Hal McNair, Director of Continuing Education at the Joint Special Operations University, and faculty members Ben Swibelson and Nate Schwagler. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on exploring the intersection of government, technology, and leadership. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. military robotic autonomous systems and the promise of 5G technology. Join host Michael Keegan for a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a two-part show exploring innovation in a military context and the implication of 5G technology. Michael welcomes senior military leaders from the Royal Netherlands Army to discuss their use of robotic autonomous systems. He closes this show with a conversation with former DOD CIO Terry Halverson about the promise of 5G technology. Next week on the Business of Government Hour. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders 
merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org.